Companies have high hopes for machine learning and AI to support real-time product offerings, prevent fraud, and drive innovation. But there is a catch. Training models require labeled data for machines to digest. As data volumes increase, the opportunity to get great ML results rises, but so does the challenge of labeling all the data correctly. Enter Snorkel AI's programmatic data labeling and ML ops platforms. Today, we're interviewing Alex Ratner, one of the founders of Snorkel AI. Snorkel AI evolved from research Alex led as part of his PhD research at Stanford, which focused on programmatic data labeling to enable faster and more accurate ML training and retraining. Alex is a born teacher, and in today's episode of Software Engineering Daily, he shares the newest developments at Snorkel, sheds light on why using ML effectively requires programmatic data labeling, and talks about foundation models in real-world enterprise settings. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Check the show notes for more information on Jocelyn's work and where to find her. Hey, everybody. Thanks uh, for uh, listening to Software Engineering Daily. We're excited to have Alex Ratner here from Snorkel AI. Uh, Alex has a long career uh, as an academic researcher, thought leader, and now is the has been the founder of Snorkel AI, where they're trying to make it much easier to train and deploy models into production across the board. Uh, well, welcome, Alex. It's great to have you here. Jocelyn, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Maybe we could start with um, you, you could give a little longer introduction uh, about yourself and a little bit about Snorkel. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh. Longer is a, a dangerous uh, adjective to give for that because there's uh, I can go on and on about about the Snorkel project. Um, it's been about eight and a half years between academia and and, and the company. So please cut me off, and I'll I'll, I'll try not to go full length. But um, yeah, I guess for myself, first of all, I'm Alex. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO at Snorkel, as you captured. I'm also um, on faculty at University of Washington, so get to work with some great students there. And uh, the broader umbrella project between Snorkel, UW, and Stanford, where um, uh, one of my co-founders is as a, a professor and where the project started is this idea that we call uh, data-centric AI. And, and and the concept there is that the the operations around manipulating, curating, labeling, cleaning data, there's a lot lot more a lot more there, um, which are often treated as kind of second class citizens in the machine learning workflow. You know, go back to a you know intro to ML or intro to data science uh, you know course you might have taken uh, in in uh, in school or online and, and look, you know, how much is actually, um, how much depth is actually covered in terms of, you know, those kind of critical data operations versus the, um, you know, the kind of algorithms and, and, and model centric ones. So over the last eight and a half years, our focus has been on making those data centric operations first class and more programmatic versus manual. So zooming in a little bit, a lot of what we do at the company today is trying to do that for one of the most critical, um, data operations in machine learning, which is labeling data to, to train models, whether you're training them from scratch or I'm going to take a wild guess and, and uh, uh, um, that we might be talking about large language models. And uh, in that case, you're labeling data to um, to fine tune them or to adapt them for, for high accuracy at specific problems. And what we've been working on at Circle over the last eight and a half years, last three years of the company is trying to make that labeling look more like software development. So we call it programmatic labeling, and I can go into more depth about that, rather than kind of what it often looks like, which is you know sending over a bunch of documents, a bunch of images to some relevant experts who have the knowledge to label it, and asking them to label you know ten thousand uh, uh, whatever it is uh, you know data points before you can even start your machine learning journey. So um, 
I'll give a quick example just to make that all concrete, and then we can circle back to it later. You know, one of our customers uh, would just release some details about what we've done together. Um, this is Wayfair. They had been doing uh, working with a vendor that used manual labeling approaches, and they took about four weeks a turn of manual labeling for every model that they were training. This is over images for their 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 website, um, and we were able to with them get it to under two hours a turn with seven to twenty two percent accuracy improvements, basically by um, not by trying to automatically make the data labeling go away, but making it look more like software development. You know, uh, writing um, higher level we call them labeling functions about what attributes they were looking for, what features, and using that to do the data labeling and supervision of the models. So taking a step back, again, big picture view between Stanford, UW, and the company is, you know, data and all the development operations of data from how you, you know, what mix you select to how you clean it to how you label it is one of the most critical kind of interfaces uh, for machine learning these days. And our goal has been to kind of push it more to the limelight, make it more first class, well supported by systems and abstractions and more programmatic than manual so it can be efficient. And you know, per your intro, Jocelyn, that, that is one of the, the key determinants of whether stuff actually gets shipped on time or even tackled at all uh, um, uh, you know, with AI. So I'll pause there, but that hopefully gives a little bit of a both high level and, and, uh, and zoomed in view. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of quick things. I, I certainly have seen this myself that, um, you know, we had high hopes for machine learning in industry, especially around things like automated underwriting, real-time decisioning, real-time um, product offerings, right? We had high hopes, but we really stubbed our toe on training data. And I have seen this myself at several companies where, um, you know, it could take a long time for a model to get retrained when you have new findings and the sort of classic here is fraud where, you know, yesterday my fraud model worked, but somehow the fraudsters got smarter overnight, which is a real thing. And uh, you have to immediately respond very quickly. And the way, for example, is great too, because, you know, customers are fickle and they expect very personalized, uh, you know, recommendations and experiences. So, um, you know, this is such a big problem uh, in industry and getting that training data right is something we'll be talking about. I have two follow-up questions. Um, you know, one is, you know, when you think about um, training data and getting a model into production, I was doing some research in this area on the business side and someone said to me, uh, you know, what people really don't realize is that production models, you know, kind of just, there's, they're always being replaced. Um, have you found that to be true? Like, what is the, I should say, what portion of activity is training? Wait, wait, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. There's a couple of things in there. And, and maybe let me start by zooming in on the, um, you know, the, the replacement and the updating of production models. And what you said earlier about, um, you know, fraud is a great example of a case, uh, you know, of a, a use case type that changes very frequently. The type of data that's coming in, uh, the type of, of, you know, attacks or scams that you're dealing with, um, they change all the time. They change actually in an adversarial way, to your point, because uh, once you get your model to pick up on something, then the, you know, the fraudsters will try a different tactic. And, you know, when you say it out loud, as I'll say in a second, it sounds very intuitive, although I think it's still very underappreciated. The most important thing for your model is, is generally the data it's trading on. And so when you need to change your model, you generally need to go back and, and change your data. And as models get more automated and, and powerful is the positive way of saying it, but, but also black box in terms of, of um, you know, interface points, increasingly really 
you know, data is the only way that you actually update the model. So I think data labeling leads to these stub toes both in a point in time way. And if you look at our, our papers in the academic literature, case studies with customers, it's often what we highlight. And I'll share some examples of that. But the bigger problem is the, is the you know, overtime, the maintenance. Um, I trained a model and maybe spent a bunch of, of, uh, um, of time, money, you know, a, a subject matter expert uh, effort to label all that data to train it. And now um, either the input data has changed um, adversarially or just through shift over time, or the output objectives have changed or both, right? The number of data science projects I've, on, I've been on where the spec of what you want the model to output was, was, was kind of right on try number one is like zero. So it's both input data shifting, it's output objectives. And every time that happens, you have to update your model. You have to replace it. And guess what that involves doing almost every single time is updating training data that the model, you know, learns everything from. And that's where, um, you know, kind of these manual legacy approaches to doing labeling, um, really start to cause pain. Yeah. It's so interesting. And your materials, I, you always use the, I was reviewing the word practical comes up a lot. Uh, and I think that is a perfect way to think about, uh, some of the solutions you've offered where they're definitely very complex mathematical and system structures that you've applied to this whole area. But the reality is, or what I've learned is practically, it's not some beautiful uh, citadel of trained data available to me when I need to, <laughs> when I need to redo or rework my model. Um, and in fact, uh, in what I've seen in business is often you do need all new, you need new data to come into that training uh, data and you got to talk to the people who own it, get it all labeled up and ready to go, run a bunch of tests. It starts the time, the practical concerns really start adding up so you don't get the fancy output that you're looking for. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think um, two elements to pull out there, you know, practicality or pragmatism and, um, and just messiness. I think um, we, we've, I guess that, that was, um, uh, the first was just kind of how we, we, we found this problem in the first place since we were, you know, we were pitching all these fancy algorithms with, you know, nice theoretical guarantees. And, um, and this was, you know, back in like 2014, when we were starting the project or when we were about to start the project, we were going to all these, these users. And this time it was, you know, scientists and, 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 you know, collaborators at the healthcare system and, and other academics, you know, we were pitching our fancy algorithms and this is when deep learning was starting to kind of take off. And so people were having these kind of more black box, powerful push button models, but they were very data hungry. So the response we often got was, okay, that's that's great, but I can't even get the model trained in the first place because I'm stuck on, you know, labeling a whole bunch of documents or images before I get started. Can you help me with that? And of course, we ignored that the first couple of times because, uh, you know, like, like most of data science, you're, you're kind of thinking about data as something that's upstream of us. It's janitorial work. It's I literally remember getting advice in, in around that time in my PhD. From uh, not from my advisor, who who uh, you know, along with uh, the rest of us, was was pushing on on the data side, but from someone else who was well-meaning. But they said, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to work on data because you're not going to publish in the machine learning conference. Um, so again, it, it, it so so why does it happen? I, I think it is because it's a lot messier than a vector or a nice mathematical model, and so we we shy away from it because it's. It's all the messiness of the real world. And it, it also involves going across silos and talking to the other teams, the subject matter experts who know how to label the data, where it comes from and what it means and how to curate it. Um, so I think that's part of why just culturally it's gotten overlooked in data science for a long time. But I think now people are realizing 
not, none of this stuff works uh, with, with bad data and getting data in not just from a bad to a good state, but getting it curated in the right way for specific problems that you need to work really well. And for each new specific problem and each new time point as, as the problem in the data evolves is you know, often the most critical uh, piece in the whole puzzle. Interesting. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the um, labeling functions and why what you're doing is different. And then we'll talk about flow, which I want to kind of look at the, just the discrete thing, the capability, and then we'll talk about how it fits into flow, if that's okay. Um, so um, in the olden days, you have a bunch of data and you sit next to your subject matter expert and type in the labels. Now, I think most people have a sort of semi-automated approach in which, you know, they're like, here's a collection of things that you can label as a group. And then just like, then I don't, then it, I, I, then I think it's got to be programmatic. And I want you to kind of fill in the blank from like yesterday to like how it should work. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let me take a step back actually, and, and this will get into the the broader workflow part that we support in our platform, Shortflow. Um, but, but even independent of that, just even if I was just, you know, teaching a course on, on, you know, da data development 101, I think there are two basic questions. It's, uh, you know, where do I label? Um, really, where do I label that I'm going to have the best, you know, going to deliver the best delta on my model's performance? Um, and then how do I label? How do I kind of get this information that's in my head or in a subject matter expert colleague's head, you know, picture, a lot of the work we do, we you know work with five of the top ten U.S. banks. We work with healthcare systems, government. So it's uh, insurance. Uh, um, so it's often uh, a doctor, a lawyer, an underwriter, uh, a governance me. Um, so people with rich technical knowledge. How do you get that, you know, into into labels the model can learn from? So the where to label part. Often, you know, this is referred to as error analysis or guided analysis. Traditionally, it's often called active learning. Uh, that's the kind of you know uh, classical subfield. And we include a lot of tooling to help with with that guidance of okay, where do we, where do I go next? Uh, what slice or subset of the data where my model is messing up on or confused about is going to be highest impact for me to label to teach the model? And then you get to labeling, and then the question becomes, how do I most efficiently label the data? And the kind of standard legacy approaches, which which still you know plays an important part in certain pieces, but is just I go and manually annotate one data point at a time. So let's say I'm trying to, you know, um, label, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, this, this email, uh, we recently did a, a trade surveillance use case uh, at a large bank. So this email is, um, uh, you know, okay or not okay type of, of discussion between traders. This is something, to, don't say already, but there's something in, in, in industry that you see a lot. There's just specific language or lingo to a particular business operation in a type of business. You know, manufacturing is one. They have their own things. Oh, exactly. In every, in every single, you know, domain, there's, there's all this kind of, um, there's medical jargon, there's insurance jargon, there's manufacturing. And so um, let's take this setting, for example, um, the legacy approach kind of, okay, I'm going to go look at one email or chat at a time. And I'm going to label, yeah, I'll just keep it really simple. This is okay. This is not okay. This is okay. This is not okay. Um, and one of the ideas, really simple, but then, but, but really powerful in terms of what we've been able uh, to help folks accomplish with it, is just to try to raise the abstraction level and go from, you know, getting one label at a time um, uh, to writing what we call labeling functions, which is writing down some kind of function that takes in a data point and either labels or abstains, says, I don't know. That's really... 
it in terms of the semantics. We deliberately kept it simple. I can go back to that. But actually, we were thinking about early on making it, you know, much more complex, you know, syntactically rich language. Then we realized, look, you know, uh, this is back in 2014, you know, uh, a lot of people were getting into Python and notebooks, even in other fields that's out of uh, computer science and said, look, we just want to make it really simple so people can jam in whatever they have. Um, so the labeling function construct is just really simple semantics of anything I can express as a function. It could be a heuristic, uh, look for look for this pattern, look for these words, uh, and, and if so, label it as you know unacceptable uh, a conversation. It could be pulling in external resources, uh, cross-reference this dictionary of kind of you know blacklisted phrases that traders are not supposed to say you know, specific to this industry. And, and if you see an, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, a reference that matches, then label it as, uh, you know, unacceptable, um, you know, uh, apply this sentiment model. And if it, you know, puts, puts this out, it's, you know, very positive, then assume it's okay. So whatever, um, heuristic, uh, model driven, uh, even, you know, now we're using, um, and notice later, but now we're using large language models and prompts as labeling functions. And it actually provides a way to unify a lot of the prompt engineering stuff using the the theory and algorithms that we've developed over the years of how to combine these these things but the point is you just take some bit of knowledge that you have and you express as a function that can now label tens hundreds thousands of data points and it also is interpretable and modifiable and and adaptable because it's code and use that to label rather than just kind of one manual label at a time that's the basic idea in a nutshell Okay, so when I know that this this type of email is okay, uh, as opposed to and everything else is everything else, um, I can create a labeling function and then programmatically. Um, what, let's talk about what programmatically really means, um, because it's going to sweep through the data and guess what happens when it's wrong, how much noise is in the system. Like, tell me, can we just kind of laser in on like exactly what happens programmatically? Yeah, yeah. So. Um... Really, really simple semantics of just it's a it's a little program that sweeps over as you said all the all the data and your let's say you st usually you're starting with an unlabeled data set and you want to label it so your model can be trained on it and we can go back to this later but this is whether you're training a model from scratch or whether you're fine tuning a large language or foundation model um, for a specific task uh, and we can talk more about that um, uh, but basically you you. You write a little function that says, you know, if I, I'm going to give a really dumb example, um, uh, if I see the phrase, you know, uh, insider information in this uh, trade chat, then I'm going to label it as, as not okay or flag for review. So that's a really simple heuristic. It's, it's you know, just a, a, a pattern match. It's using some domain knowledge, though, about the, the problem setting. Um, in actuality, I have no domain knowledge here, so I'm, I'm making up a dumb example, but you could imagine that our they're usually much richer, uh, more interesting ones. And this labeling function now will get applied to the whole training set. And it's basically saying, if I see this phrase labeled as unacceptable, otherwise abstain. So like most heuristics, and this is why heuristic or rule-based systems don't work well enough, and that's why we're trying to train models in the first place, it's not going to be perfectly accurate. Um, and you know, what if someone's saying, I have no insider information on this, that might be unacceptable, or I don't want to use insider information. Like there's there's richer context that could make any of these incorrect, right? So it's not perfectly accurate, or it's noisy, uh, like 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 you had uh, mentioned, and it's also pretty brittle, right? It might only trigger on 
you know, three, four or five percent of the of, of the data. And this is why we we in the academic literature, we've we've done this around the underlying theory and algorithms. We call it weak supervision. The idea is it's it's um it's not as good as taking, you know, let's say you have ten thousand of these of these emails. You know, the traditional way is you ask an expert or usually you have to label and triplicate with these difficult problems to label every single one of those ten thousand data points. I think this can take months or 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 years even. Um that would be normal supervision. Here we're giving this much more efficient richer, more maintainable kind of programmatic uh, uh, supervision, but it's also messier. So a lot of the theory and the algorithmic work that we did was how do you take a set of these labeling functions, each of which can be very brittle, meaning it only labels a little bit of the data. It can be very noisy, meaning it makes lots of mistakes. These labeling functions can conflict with each other. They can be correlated. They can be biased in terms of where they're better or worse at performing. And uh, we use theoretically grounded techniques to kind of figure out how to um, estimate their qualities, reweight, and combine them. So the result is you write, let's say, a couple dozen of these labeling functions. Maybe you only label a, a subset of the data, but our technology takes it and uh, basically figures out how to orchestrate denoise and combine these these labeling functions into a a clean training set that can then be used to train a machine learning model that can generalize to to all of the data from that signal. That's a great explanation. And to me, just to boil it down to non-technical terms, you know, when you're doing a heuristic or, you know, straight filter, right? That's like, do what I say. Do what I say. And what you're saying is like, do what I meant to say. Exactly. That's a, that's a great way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. Because these models, especially as we head into, uh, you know, a reality where most people are training, and this has been actually the case for a long time, but now everyone's very excited about it. People are training models that have been pre-trained in some way. Whether you call them a, a large language model, we like the term foundation model. I can get into that in a in a bit. Before let's get into just, that. Or sure, let's get into it. So, so let me let me just set the let me just set this right. I think everybody who listens to the show knows this, but uh, you have these foundational models. They're trained and they're really good at something. For instance, um, answering questions. Um, and now the debate in techno in Silicon Valley techno land is okay. How do we get this into enterprise or into specific situations? And that's what you're going to talk about, I think. Yep. Um, and there's a ton to say there. So I'll start with the term foundation model because it's a, it's a it kind of encapsulates a lot of how we, we view these things. And this is a term, there's a, there's a long, very thoughtful, detailed post from uh, the, the Stanford Center on Foundation Models where my co-founder, uh, Chris, is a part of put that going into the too. Yeah, it's going into the details of this term. I'll just give kind of why I like the term, right? So three reasons. Number one, these models um, are often referred to as large language models, but they're they really the same self-supervision or auto, you know, autoregressive techniques work over anything with graph structure. So for text, basically it works. You train these models in a very, you know, to, to, to put it very simply is, you know, here's a bunch of text, try to predict the next couple of words. And from that, at just incredible scale with modern deep learning architectures, usually it's a transformer architecture um, and, and tons of compute, you actually get just incredible results from just that really simple uh, learning objective, which, by the way, doesn't require labeled data. So you can do this, this unlabeled self-supervision. Um, again, you can do it over uh, uh, not just text. You can do it over image. You can do it over databases. You can do it over graphs. Um, so that's why we like the term, you know, foundation model, it's a superset of just large language model. Number two, um, 
a lot of people are excited about the generative use cases. So generate an image, generate a summary. But um, these models are extremely useful for what we often call predictive use cases, like classify this email as good or bad, or you know, uh, classify this as fraud or not. So again, we like the more general term. But the real reason that I like using that term foundation models, because I think it sets expectations in a little bit uh, of a better way, which is that these these models truly are a step change, one of the biggest practical advances in AI in the last decade. Um, but for most, you know, complex, high-value enterprise use cases, at least, they're foundations. They they don't build the house for you. And you need to do some kind of adaptation uh, beyond that to get them to be accurate. You know, to, to many, probably a lot of you have heard the phrase uh, uh, hallucination, right? To um, I, I actually, I don't often use that term because hallucination makes it sound like these things are it's like some crazy emergent property that they would make up facts when they were only ever trained to say plausible statistically plausible you know uh, uh you know babble right they, they were never trained to be truthful or accurate with respect to a specific task so generally if you really want high accuracy meaning no errors no hallucinations no biases is a whole other subject you need to actually do some further instruction of the model for the specific domain, data type, task type that you're, you're you're looking at, one way that people talk about doing this is via prompting. So you can you know kind of engineer kind of the instruction that you give to these models. Um, generally, you know if you want to get high performance, you need to actually train the model a bit further, which is called fine tuning. Um, and fine tuning requires labeled data. So again, we kind of come back to this um uh, this this uh, you know, this this need for for labeled data, um, and, and I'll get into actually all the other data centric operations that go into building these models because we're actually announcing some stuff um, next week uh, that, to support that. But just to stick on labeling for a second more, I'll give an example. We were working with a, a large uh, you know, a top ten pharma company, um, and they applied GPT four to a use case that involved um, classifying and extracting information from clinical trial documents at a high level. So um, they applied GPT-4 um, actually in our platform, SnorkelFlow, to this uh, these documents. And they were getting about 66% accuracy just by you know trying to fiddle and engineer the prompts for this model. When they then went and labeled some data using this programmatic, you know, rapid programmatic labeling process in SnorkelFlow, this is just a couple hours of work, they got this model up to... Um, uh, up to you know low 90s uh, in in just just a couple of hours of work, and actually the little bit of detail there, uh, you know, is that I said this model is being kind of uh, um, uh, uh, sloppy. The GPT-4 actually doesn't support fine tuning yet, so actually they trained a significantly smaller model first GPT-3 and then actually just a a basic logistic regression model over some embeddings. So they had a model that's hundreds of thousands of times smaller that's now getting in the 90s versus um, this you know, large out-of-the-box prompted model that was getting 66. So there are lots of settings, you know, especially where the data is a little bit closer to the web data these models are trained on, where the, you know, the, the, maybe the, the problem is a little bit simpler, where these models really do work out of the box. It's, it's miraculous. But there are many, many settings, uh, and they're often some of the highest value and most complex ones, uh, and they're often in the enterprise where there's private data that doesn't look like you know, private data, private jargon that doesn't look like, you know, generic web data where, you know, these models 
don't just magically work out of the box or in a little bit of prompt engineering. So generally you need to, you know, uh, fine tune them with some labeled data. And this not only allows you to make them more accurate, but you can also shrink them down or distill them into smaller models that are uh, kind of think about it as going from a generalist that's kind of, you know, jack of all trades, good at, good at, you know, everything a little bit, but not perfect to a specialist. There's actually a, a, a paper by that title um, uh, about ChatGPT called Jack of All Trades. It was a big benchmark survey and found that ChatGPT, um, on average, um, uh, with some prompting, was was beaten by specialist models by about 25% across a wide array of tasks. So, uh, you know, I think what 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 this what we're all learning, and this is why we like this term foundation model, is that these models are incredible starting points. Some tasks, they really will just solve entirely out of the box. But when you have a complex domain-specific problem that has to achieve high accuracy before you can ship it to production, let's say it's about a really critically important problem like catching potential uh, potential insider trading or or catching fraud, you generally need to fine-tune or specialize these models, and that all comes down to labeling and curating data. Amazing. Um, thank you for explaining that because I was uh, I'm a little behind on my reading on this. To be honest with you, I'm... oh, we all are. It's it's a just. There's like 25 papers a second uh, these days in AI. It's it's quite <laughs> quite a fun but sometimes overwhelming environment. So there's a debate right now when you think about foundation models of whether it's going to be open source or it's going to be more proprietary models. Do you have uh, some thoughts or general opinions on that that you could share? Oh, for sure. This is a this is a fun topic. So I'll note first of all that from the standpoint of uh, the the main platform that we build, Circleflow. Um, we're, we're, we're pointedly neutral here and, and we're uh, kind of bring your own foundation model. So you, you basically start with, uh, whether it's an open source model, um, uh, uh, or a, a closed API, uh, you kind of plug that into the platform and we help, uh, kind of identify error modes and then correct them via programmatic labeling, uh, or other forms of feedback and use that to fine tune these models and, or distill them down to smaller deployment models. So there it's kind of whatever you want to start with. But I obviously have opinions here with both, you know, the circle hat and the academic hat on. And um, I think it's useful to frame this, um, you know, well, first, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's a lot that that I, uh, um, you know, I don't I, I wouldn't I wouldn't claim that I know I, I didn't I didn't, you know, many like many of us, I didn't call uh, how, how um, you know, what a big inflection point we'd go through from scaling up these models. Um, uh, I thought, thought, thought that it was a great direct. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, um yeah, we were we were very excited. You know, actually, uh, Chris and I had published some some papers around um, something called multitask learning. Uh, this it's an old field. We kind of thought these these we we had written about these you know these kind of we were calling them massively multitask models that would be super generalist. But we thought that you know we kind of wrote off self supervision as like a a trick, and we thought the the, the multitask learning and, and other fancier techniques would be what what you know really got them there and. Turns out, self supervision—if you just scale it up incredibly—was um, just miraculous. Here, I'm going on a brief tangent, but actually, this is a, a really quickly great story. No, it's like it's been up and coming since 2001. You know? Oh, even earlier. I mean, so and it showed up for for me. I guess that's when I engaged with it. But I was just like, it's always like it's it's right around the corner every year. But we uh, we, we never expected that it would it would you know you'd get these kinds of inflection points and capabilities from from scaling up so that that's a um and as the one example i was going to give this is a, a tangent but um 
uh, I guess this is evidence maybe we, we, we should have been able to, to, to predict it because there's a paper back in 2007. Uh, I love I love this because of, of the names they chose. It was a Google, bunch of Google researchers, including Jeff Dean, and they were um, studying a technology at the time called large language models. It, it did exist even back in the 90s. Um, and was powering your, uh, you know, your, your, you know, predict the next uh, word that you're texting and things like that. And there were these um, algorithms at the time that had fancy names like Laplace smoothing and Nesser Ney smoothing and things like this. And they show they showed that they had an algorithm that they called stupid backoff, and it blew them out of the water. What was the secret? They trained on a hundred times the amount of data. So you know, we we we've always. No, and it's not a new thing that data is important. And, and I'll get into this a little bit later with some of the stuff we're doing here. But the exact degree to which this scale up would happen, I think, to speak for, by definition, most of us in academia didn't didn't guess. Um, so, you know, take it, you know, I'll be, be, hum, be humble in, in all these predictions. But I think... I love that you're saying that. I mean, just as a data person, sorry to interrupt. Now this is a tangent, but I'm just going to say, uh, I feel like everyone just keeps coming up, showing up to the party. Like, you know what's important? The data. I'm like, Yes. I feel like we've been, like everywhere, application security, cyber, privacy, everyone's like, you know, the real thing is the data. I'm like, yeah, that's the real, that's the real problem. And it's the hardest to solve. Time is a flat circle. Everything's a pendulum. Like this, this always comes up. I mean, it's kind of like in machine learning, it's, you know, you have these waves where people start with a new technique, whether it's you know, deep learning or now foundation models. And, you know, you know, for a while, the limiting reagent is getting that technique, the model, the algorithm correct. But then kind of once you, you solve it, and this is, especially true in machine learning, where kind of everything is treated like a vector. It's all very domain agnostic. That becomes widely available. And then surprise, surprise, the limiting reagent, the critical factor just goes right back to the data. Um, because guess what? When people say AI, they really mostly mean machine learning. And machine learning is, by definition, just about fitting to and learning from the data. So sorry, back to open source versus uh, proprietary API. And I'm interested to know your opinion because I'm like an open source hippie from way back. And so I reflexively am always like, it's open source, but now I'm doubting myself. So I'm interested to hear your opinion. I, I, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on open source. Um, there's a bunch of uh, the snorkel team an extended team in academia um, that has contributed a bunch of the, uh, the, the open source models um, uh, that are out there, uh, open source foundation models. I, I, I you know, I, I think of it on this spectrum if I was forced to make predictions of, of kind of generalist versus specialist. I think where closed models may continue to dominate, and I think it's kind of a winner-takes-all environment because of flywheel effects um, uh, with, with feedback, so I think it'll be one or two. I think where that really may win is in these very generalist, probably consumer use cases where um, you want an all-powerful, you know, GPT-4, 5, 6, 7 style, you know, chatbot, uh, kind of interface where you can kind of just ask it anything and get good performance um, over these kind of consumer web data settings where you do actually have a ton of data to train on. And you, you, um, you know, some people think we're tapping out in terms of how much juice can be squeezed out of the open internet. Uh, some people don't think that. I think there's more room to go. And so the combination of just scaling, continuing to scale these models up, continuing to improve how the data that goes into them is curated, which is a fantastic challenge when you think about the scale of, of, of web data out there. And then also the feedback loops that that's why I think it's winner takes all, you know, if someone starts using chat GPT or chat GPT takes, takes off. Now OpenAI has this data flywheel of feedback, training data, labeled training data from, you know, users. Um, so I think in this kind of setting, you know, you really can continue to get benefits out of the scale. However, most 
enterprise, I really just use it as a proxy for kind of real world, uh, um, I'll just say enterprise use cases. It's more of a specialist setting. You're not looking necessarily for this, you know, chatbot that you can ask to compose sonnets and help you with like your math homework. You want a model that can do a task or a set of tasks in a certain domain and setting with reliable, repeatable, robust accuracy. And in those kinds of settings, I, I think we've already more than crossed the threshold. We're starting with an open source model and then further customizing it or fine tuning it for that setting is more than good enough compared to a closed model. So my prediction is that there will be these kind of super generalist, probably more consumer use cases where I think open source is giving closed source a run for its money, but there's at least a, a decent first principles chance that the closed models like OpenAI, it's always a fun phrase to say, you know, continue to dominate. But I think in the enterprise and anywhere where you have specific objectives, um, you know, open source models that are then customized or tuned with enterprise specific data and feedback will take the day. And we're already kind of seeing this. Um, and I think it's really for two reasons, uh, or I'll give give kind of these anecdotally. One is going back to the example I shared earlier of the pharma company starting with GPT-4 at 66 and then you know, labeling and correcting error modes in the data to improve it. Um, you know, what do you really care if maybe, let's say GPT-4 gets you 66 and an open source model gets you 62. It, if this is just a starting point, how much do you actually care about that? Especially if, you know, you can then own the results, you know, uh, uh, you know own the, um, the model that you start with in the 62% setting. If you still have to tune it for these specialist settings, how much do you actually care about that, that boost? Um, that's kind of one anecdotal reason. And the other one is that people are increasingly real realizing that if you look at the space and this, per the comment about, you know, pendulum swings and, and old is new again, like this happens every time in machine learning is that the models are standardizing and commoditizing. Everyone's using the same model. Uh, the the algorithms are commoditizing and standard. Everyone's using the same algorithm. Um, what is, and even the data that people are training, you know, the kind of um, uh, instruction tuning data sets that got uh, from GPT-3 to chat GPT, for example, are getting um, uh, really commoditized out there. People are reproducing them in the open source. What is the one kind of asset that is, probably has a very durable mode. It's private enterprise data and knowledge that is needed to specialize these models for specific settings and use cases. So enterprises are, are saying, hey, if I, if I have really the one valuable asset, do I really want to give that back to an API model provider or do I want to own the results of all that, that specialization? So I think for those two reasons, uh, you know, and just basic empirical data, we're going we're gonna to see really open source models that enterprises can customize uh, and build on their own really take over. And that gives me a shameless segue into sharing a little bit of what I mentioned of some of the stuff that we're announcing next week. So our main platform for data labeling, we call Sorkleflow, but we're also announcing um, a broader foundation model data platform. And and two pieces of that are uh, um, Sorkle, we call Sorkle Foundry and Sorkle Genflow. And these are all about the broader set of data operations um, that help you curate your data, uh, um, and build it up to pre-train your own models, whether from scratch or off of an open source base, um, and also, you know, align and, and inst you know, instruction tune them to be uh, a good at generative use cases like chat, summarization, Q&A, et cetera. And 
I'll, I'll give kind of one example that's an open source uh, uh, research artifact to motivate this, and then and then I'll get uh, give a little bit of details about what these these new platforms support. So, a quick example. Um, this is an awesome project um, uh, that was done uh, uh, via uh, so students at UW and a whole bunch of other collaborators. It was a big consortium with like Google and Apple and Stability and Lion and a bunch of academic places called DataComp. You can check it out at datacomp.ai. It's actually set up as a benchmark. But the cool kind of the, the result that I like from this is that basically in in DataComp we we um we set up um it, we set it up as like a contest to start, but basically fixed all of the model uh, architecture, all the model selection, the algorithm, all of the training code for a large foundation model. This was a multimodal one called Clip, um, and only allowed people to modify how they selected the right mix of data, filtered it, cleaned it did all those data operations, even before labeling. Um, and if you just, you know, mess around with those data-centric operations, you get a new state-of-the-art score, a compute parity that beats OpenAI, beats, you know, everything else out there. So this just kind of speaks to how, and when you say it out loud, it actually sounds completely intuitive, but the mixture of data that you pour into these models has a huge effect on how they either work or don't work. So we're building lots of tooling uh, and solutions to support that. And it's not just about labeling anymore. It's about supporting operations like sampling, the right mixture of different data sources uh, to pour in, um, uh, uh, filtering out you know, high versus low quality data points, um, as well as annotating them when you're then getting to, to more of the fine tuning. So really excited to share more of that uh, next week. But um, you know, the, the, the TLDR is basically Every stage of these models from, you know, uh, uh, either pre-training them from scratch or op often open source base, which if you, you know, have the same view as I do, you think uh, uh, most enterprises are going to move to so they can better own and utilize their unique data, all the way to uh, instruction tuning these models so that they can uh, be properly aligned. This is like the RLHF style stuff that got you know, GPT-3 to chat GPT. And then to fine tuning on very specific tasks where you need high accuracy, all of these steps, you know, the most critical operation, especially these days, is so much is available in the open source and so much is kind of standardized in the models and the algorithms, et cetera, is really how you curate the data. And a lot of that is still labeling it, but a lot of it also is, you know, not just labeling, it's all these other data centric operations, sampling, filtering, cleaning, um, curating. Um, and we're excited both to support that with our with our tooling and solutions, but also just to, you know, keep pushing on this broader notion that hey, these data centric operations are not second class citizens. They're not kind of upstream janitorial work. They really are, you know, and they're going to increasingly be this way as models get bigger and more black box. They're the heart of what modern data scientists and data science teams need to actually do. So hopefully we kind of get that word out there because um, it's a it's a big a big shift in 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 really what. AI development looks like. So this is Foundry, and what was the other one? And uh, Snorkel Genflow. Found Snorkel, Foundry, and Snorkel Genflow. Uh, all right, well, that's interesting. I'm just going to repeat back what I think I hear you saying. So, you know, open source uh, foundational models are going to win the day, potentially, in, in corporate, certainly, and uh, opposed to prompts are okay for fine-tuning, but, fi like, prompts are okay for getting better answers, but fine-tuning is where you want to be, where you do this kind of very targeted training. And... Uh, Boundary and Genflow are going to help you kind of create a workbench uh, to help you do this uh, correct mixture, add mixture of uh, training data in addition to 
helping you label it. And that's really where you guys have landed with the whole offering is much more of a uh, platform, right, for ML ops all the way through, as opposed to like a point solution. You're, you're kind of really got your arms around that whole that whole data centric set of activities, not just like one of the key ones. Exactly. I like your summary better than mine. So exactly. Like, you know, I think uh, these these major closed models, you know, from providers like OpenAI really have shown the pathway forward, have changed the field. I do think they're going to continue to be extremely relevant, but especially in specialized, you know, enterprise settings where there's unique data, unique objectives, where you need to get really high accuracy, you know, on, on specific tasks. You need to, you need a specialist, not a, not a, not a generalist. Um, we're going to see a lot that's being done with open source models that enterprises can then tune and adapt using their data and knowledge for high accuracy on their objectives. And a lot of this is going to be accomplished via labeling, but there's also a, a richer set of operations all around manipulating the data. And that's our objective is to support that and, um, uh, uh, you know, and then make it more efficient, more first class, more programmatic. Programmatic, I think, right? It's it's definitely like a, um, more of an art than science today. And the companies I've worked at, of uh, you know, there's you know the data whisperer out there who somehow magically does data science and and the, the data work, right? Um, but I think yeah, having a workbench that creates a programmatic approach to creating the right mixture and lets you move the turn the knobs as needed. I, I definitely I can see a lot of people really being interested in that. And so I know we're coming to the end, but let me ask you a couple quick uh, things about the business. How is it going? You told me a little bit about where you're where you're going. Um, how's Snorkel doing? Oh, it, I mean, th things are very exciting these days, obviously for uh, for AI companies. And so, um, yeah, we're we're really privileged to work with a, a ton of great customers. We work with five of the top ten U.S. banks, um, number of. Um, uh, large pharmaceutical companies, insurance, um, telecom, healthcare, and life sciences, uh, federal. So, um, yeah, it's very exciting to see uh, this kind of, you know, top-down as well as bottoms-up interest around AI. I think it's also an interesting time. There's a lot of a lot of head spinning, a lot of you know, a lot of kind of riding the roller coaster of the hype cycle. Uh, so, you know, there's there's always pros and cons to this kind of a moment. But obviously, you know, we're trying to you know, take advantage of it, um, of this, this upsurge in interest in AI while also trying to be very, you know, pragmatic and grounded and kind of, you know, what are the right use cases? What is, what is doable versus not, uh, as we, um, uh, we work with our customers or prospective customers, because we build a horizontal platform that can tackle lots of things, but we, we usually land around, you know, proving out value on a use case. And so I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, separating the, the, the hype from the real value, um, and so we still try to be careful about that. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's a very exciting time in AI. Uh, so, uh, and we're we're very lucky to get to work with an awesome set of customers who, you know, teach us a lot about you know uh, AI and AI in their domains as well, which is always how we like to work. That is amazing. It's great to have you here. Next time, I you know what we didn't get to, and I wanted to talk about is the journey of an academic into Silicon Valley startup land, uh, because a lot of your co-founders have a similar background as well. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to do a separate show on that journey, and uh, I'm sure there's others just like you. I'm sure there's others just like you waiting in the wings, uh, who have an academic background and want and want to question mark put their toe in, but are <laughs> maybe they don't want to. <laughs> All right, it was great to talk with you. Thanks, Alex. Jocelyn, thanks so much for having me.